what a savior. Well, let's, let's read about him, shall we? Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And the title of our message this morning is Chosen by God. Chosen by God. And, and as I look around this room this morning, I see men and women, I see boys and girls, all from different nations, customs, languages, socioeconomic status, educational levels, interests, and I ask myself, what has brought us together? What do we have in common? And the answer for those of us in Christ is that we have all been chosen by God. God chose us out of millions lost to be recipients of his mercy in Christ Jesus. That is just what we celebrated in communion, the sacrament of communion. We came together as one people, partaking of his body and his blood in faith, confessing together that we trust in Christ's righteousness, which is ours because of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We are brothers and sisters in Christ with God as our father. Why? Because we are chosen by God. My daughter Melinda is pregnant and due with their third child in October. Their two little girls, Mary Jane and Annabelle, are eagerly awaiting the birth of their little sister, or at least that is what they want. In fact, Mary Jane has already picked out the name, Jessica. Now, David and Melinda have been clear with her that is probably not the name they're going to give this baby. And I, as her grandfather, have been very clear with her. We can't give the baby that name because his name will be Alistair. Okay, all kidding and conjecture aside, what does this have to do with our text? And why am I sharing this story with you? It is to point to one very important fact of our text, that just as we do not choose our parents or our siblings, we don't even choose our names in our natural birth, so in our spiritual birth, we do not choose our heavenly father. No, he chose us. He gave us his name, Christians, and he introduces us to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now look around. You may not have chosen some of us as your brothers and sisters, but God did. And in doing so, make you part of his family, part of this church. We are the people of God in Christ. And for those of you who were not able to take communion this morning because you have not experienced this new birth in Christ, oh friend, thank you for being here. I so respect you coming. And I pray that today would be your spiritual birthday as you receive God's sovereign mercy in Christ. Chosen by God. This is what defines us in Christ, and this is the subject of our text. So let's pray first, shall we? That our ears would be opened, distractions would cease, 
our hearts would be engaged, our minds would be engaged. Let's pray that the Spirit of God anoint us, all of us, me to preach, you to listen. That God would build us as his people, those who are chosen by God. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would open my mouth now to speak your word with an anointing, far more than just words. But you, O Holy Spirit, hammering these words home in the hearts of the members and the guests who are here this morning, of those who will listen digitally this week. Yes, Lord, I pray that today would be the spiritual birthday of some. You know that day, but you tell us to pray and believe and preach. So Lord, come, have mercy on your people. Fill us, Lord, with your truth and your word as we read it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's turn now. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that which is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says to Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah prophesied, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. We all come to the place, don't we, in our lives where we question God's fairness. Or as Paul puts it in verse 14, his justice. Is God just? It usually starts with the temporal things of life, our family, our friends, our looks, our talents, our jobs, our income, 
our capacity, even the success of our efforts and work. We question God's fairness when we compare ourselves to others, envying what they have because we would like that, or complaining about our circumstances. And all of this points really ultimately to God because ultimately it is God who is sovereign over every molecule on this universe. Nothing moves apart from his sovereign will and care. Now, the question that Paul poses here in verse 14 goes far beyond these silly temporal issues of what I look like or what I wish I looked like or how much money I wished I had. No, the question that Paul brings up here in verse 14 goes to the issue of whether God's purpose, according to election, is intrinsically unjust. Is there injustice in God because he elected us before we were born? Basing it on his call, his will, and not our works. You see, God fulfills his promises because they depend on his call, his will, apart from our works. Now that gives a security But then it begs the question, if you elected some, why didn't you elect others? Is there injustice with God? Paul answers that question very quickly in verse 14. By no means. He's used that phrase, me genitoi. four or five times now in this book of Romans when he presents a question Is the law bad? By no means. Is God unjust? By no means. You see, we are born into the family we're born into entirely apart from our choosing. We are given the name that we have entirely apart from our choosing. See me privately, I'll tell you how I got my name. It's rather humorous. And so we ask, is it fair? Is it fair? Is God unjust? I I don't know, God, if I like the way you're fulfilling your promises. See, remember, last week, the question was, does God keep his word? Does he fulfill his promises to his people? Because you know what? His people in the Old Testament, Israel... The Jews don't look like they're believing in Jesus as their Messiah, as their Christ. So has God's promises for his people failed? Has his word failed? And the answer was a resounding no, it hasn't failed. Because Israel is redefined as the people of God in Christ. We are the Israel of God. We are the people of God, including Jews and Gentiles. So God's promises haven't failed. And then he says this. Look at Romans 9.11. Just quick review from last week. Romans 9.11. Jim alluded to it earlier. Though they were not yet born, speaking of Isaac and Esau, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And so we immediately want to throw a flag on that. Hey, that's no fair. I mean, I'm grateful that God fulfills his word, and he fulfills his promises, and he does so because it's based on his call, his will, his sovereign election, and nothing that we do. That's good. Okay, I feel secure. Jim, you're right. I am secure. But wait a second. How come he calls some but doesn't call others? 
poor Esau in the womb. He didn't do anything. Isaac got the call, not Esau. Is there injustice on God's part? Look at verse 14. That's the question. And and Paul says, no, there is not injustice on God's part. No, there is just, just mercy that God chooses to have on whomever he wills. And that's the main point of the text, I believe, and our main point on the screen. Our just God, no injustice with him, our just God chooses to have mercy on whomever he wills. You see, the question in verse 14, guys, is the wrong question because the basis upon which God deals with his people in a saving way is not justice but mercy. So Paul answers the question with the truth of God's mercy. Point one, God chooses to have mercy on whomever he wills. In verse 15, Paul is going to quote God's words to Moses. Look at it with me. Romans 9, 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, this quote is from Exodus 33, verse 19. And the context of Exodus 33 33, is that Israel has separated themselves from God. They've sinned against God because they have worshipped a foreign idol. Moses is up on the mountain. Israel forms a golden calf and says, you're the one that delivered us from Egypt and from Pharaoh. And they started worshipping them. And Moses shows up. God says, get down there. So the context of this, what was just quoted in Romans 9.15, is one of Moses interceding for God's people who have separated themselves from God, and he's asking God to forgive them, and he's asking God to reside with them, and look, and he's asking God for his glory. Look at this, Exodus 33.18 and 19. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. This is the personal name of God, Yahweh. Oh, God is revealing himself. And how does God reveal himself? What is God's name then associated with immediately after that? That I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God revealed his name to Moses and he promised his presence to Moses. And revealing his name, he makes this statement, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will be compassionate or be gracious to whom I will be gracious. That is who I am, Yahweh. That is God's prerogative. God ended up showing mercy to Israel that day. And Moses interceded for Israel that day. But, oh, friends, that was simply there to point to the greater Moses, to Jesus Christ, who did not intercede with, for us by words as Moses did for Israel, but Jesus interceded for us with his very life, as we just heard. Jesus is the one who was put on that cross willingly by the Father, And the justice that our sins deserve 
was visited on him and the condemnation and the wrath of God was visited on him so that we might receive mercy. And God says, I will have mercy on whomever I will in Christ. He has the right to give his mercy to whomever he wills. And his mercy is what determines everything. Look at verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And in this, we see the glory of God. Listen, Moses, back to the scripture in Exodus 33. Moses, what did he ask for? Put that scripture back up, please. What did Moses ask for in Exodus 33? Show me your glory. And what did God show Moses? His mercy. Moses asked to see God's glory and God showed him his mercy. We see God's glory revealed in its most fullest sense. In his mercy revealed on the cross. In Christ crucified. The mercy offering. You want to see God's glory. You look at the cross of Christ. Oh, if you're here and do not know that glory, I humbly ask you to consider carefully, to listen to the Spirit speaking to you through these words and run to that cross. Answer the phone if he's calling, if you hear it. And I pray you would. Well, in verse 17, we have another conversation from Exodus recorded. This one doesn't speak of mercy. This one speaks of justice. Look at it with me. We have recorded here a conversation between God through Moses and Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, quote, For this very purpose, God speaking, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. The same God who reveals his name through giving mercy to his people reveals his name by giving justice to the reprobate, those who are not his people. Oh, this is where it gets a little touchy for some. For God uses Pharaoh, raises him up actually, to reveal his power and his name so that his name would be proclaimed on the earth, not just by the mercy he reveals to Israel, but by the justice that he merits and gives out to Pharaoh. The very name that God revealed through Israel, he reveals through this justice meted out to Pharaoh. That his power would be known. Listen, the very power that liberated Israel is the power that judged Pharaoh. Does this prove God to be unjust? That's the question in verse 14. And it's not just the question in verse 14. I don't know if you remember last week I mentioned that in Romans 3, 1 to 8, that was a little, like, that was a little uh, trailer, a little preview to Romans 9 through 11, this question of God's righteousness, of God's justice. And in Romans 3, 5, a very similar question is posited. Look at it on the screen, Romans 3, 5. <clears throat> But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. 
It's that, it's that question that Paul is positing in verse 14. He's just bringing it forward. He's going to treat it in more depth here. The answer back then was may genitoi, by the way. No, by no means. And the answer in 14 is by no means. And the answer today is by no means. But you're asking me, because they were asking Paul, but Al, is it fair that God shows mercy to some but justice to others? Why don't they all get mercy? It's a great question. Because God chose it that way. And because God is right and good. And a book that has helped me to understand this is a book by R.C. Sproul called Chosen by God. Fantastic book. Get it today. Buy it on Amazon. Download it to your Kindle, your iPhone, your iPad, whatever. Just get it and start reading it. And in chapter 2, he has this tremendous illustration that helps me understand this. And I've put it for you here on the screen. And what this illustration reveals to us is that God in no way visits injustice on anyone. The circle on your left is titled Justice. This is what Pharaoh received for his wickedness. It's what we all deserve because of our wickedness. Everybody. Jacob in the womb and Esau in the womb. Because we are marked and stained by sin. You are marked and stained by sin. You deserve justice from God and that is death because you sinned in Adam. The circle on the right is non-justice, which is Logically, everything that isn't justice is non-justice. But there are two subsets there that are very important for us to tease out. The first is mercy. Mercy is non-justice. It's a good non-justice. The second one is injustice. That's a bad non-justice. What the Bible teaches us here is that God chooses to give some non-justice. He chooses to give them mercy. But no one is a victim here of injustice. No one deserves mercy. And our problem is that we think we do or mankind does. See, the question isn't why are not all saved? The question is why are any saved? God is sovereign. He is not under obligation to show us mercy. Oh, friend, that may offend you, but it's true. And apart from believing what Scripture says about this, you will never be able to have true gratitude for grace because you'll think it was owed you as a human being. Or somehow God is morally obligated by some cosmic law outside of his own self to have mercy on everybody. He doesn't. He gives it voluntarily. He gives it voluntarily. Verse 18 summarizes the matter. Read it with me. So, then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That word harden there is not speaking of any evil that God visits on anybody. There's no injustice here. No, what it's saying is God in his divine election, his merciful election, 
passes over people who are already sinful, who already deserve God's judgment. They don't get his mercy. Human beings, because of their sin, are responsible for their ultimate condemnation. God's bestowing of mercy is different than God's hardening. In his bestowing of mercy, it's an active work of God where he chooses them, where he says from the foundations of the earth, I'm choosing you, I'm going to work in you, I'm going to give you mercy. Hardening is different. He does not give them mercy. Huge difference that we must grasp. But when you read verse 18, you say, What is said in verse 19? If it all depends on God's choice and on God's mercy, he gives mercy to some, he hardens others. That is to say, he actively gives one mercy and he passes over, does not give that same merciful election to others. Then the question in verse 19 immediately arises in your mind. Read it with me. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? It is logical but it's also wrong. It's the wrong question. In fact, the way that God initially addresses that question is to remind us who he is and who we are. Verse 20 clearly states, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Are are we really going to tell God how to run the universe. Now I realize for most of us, and I'm the first one in line, I feel free to, how to, to tell everyone how to run their business. If I'm in line and I'm waiting too long, I'm willing to tell everybody around me how they could do this differently. If things don't happen the way I want, when I want them, I get very impatient, very vocal, very quickly, and I let everybody know how this thing should be running. And if I were in charge, and if, you know, okay, you got that? Yeah, we all have that. But what are we going to tell them, folks? Uh, This response here from Paul reminds me, and I think Paul might have been thinking about God's response to Job when Job was questioning him. By the way, let me say, this this is speaking more in terms of that rebellious questioning. I mean, we're going to question God. He understands that. Read the Psalms. The psalmist is crying out all the time. But this is that, that really down and dirty You know how you get sometimes. And listen to what God said to Job. Job 38, 1 to 4. On the screen. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Yeah, that would be most of us. Words without knowledge. I excel in that. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, Job. And you make it known to me. Where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me if you have understanding. You see, that's where God goes here in our text. Because in the second part of verse 20 and verse 21, what God says is, Who are you, O man, to question me? I'm your creator. In fact, at the end of verse 20, he says that I'm the and you are the thing molded. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me this way? Oh, we do all the time. We, We do it, again, in the temporal things. We stand in front of the mirror, the bathroom mirror. Why did you make me this way? <laughs> I wish I were name it. For me, it was taller. My brother's six foot. I'm 5'11". He could jump out of the gym. Uh, 
He got my dad's athletic genes. I got my mom's good looks. Just kidding. That's a joke there, okay? Come on, relax. Take it easy. Come on, Lord. Just 6'1", 6'2". I'll take a 25-inch vertical. I just want to be able to jam it. That's it. And I was a kid. It's funny. Isn't it silly? But it's not silly. Because it, it really bothered me. Maybe it bothers you that you're not as thin. You're not as whatever. You're not as smart. You're not as... You fill in the blank. Ultimately, that goes back to God. Is the thing moldy? Going to say to the molder, why did you make me like this? <laughs> I don't want to be like this. I'm an iPhone 5. I want to look like this. Yeah, well, I made you. <laughs> it's like logic here, okay? And then the potter. Does the potter have the right out of the clay from the same lump? All right? Some for honorable use. Some for dishonorable use, which is what he goes on to say here. Some for salvation. Some are going to receive mercy. Some are going to be passed over, and they won't have that electing undeserved mercy given them. They'll get justice. They're not going to get injustice. Doesn't the potter have that right? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. See, again, the question should not be, why do some receive his mercy and others not? But the question should be, why does anyone receive his mercy? Especially in light of the, 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 the crimes we've committed against him. The treason, the robbery, the mocking. And, and it's there that I want to appeal to you. Because I know some of you, this is an issue. It's still an issue. I'll never forget a member of our church in my living room about 16 years ago talking about this doctrine. And she's weeping, but what if God did not choose my children? I don't know if I could take that. I understood her weeping. There's a lot of weeping on this side of heaven. So I don't want to mock this. This isn't a theological exercise only. I want your heart to be drawn to something. This God, this God who chooses to have mercy on some, none of us deserve it. This is the God who punished our sins on his son. His son willingly went to the cross to receive our condemnation, our judgment. This is the God who sovereignly gives mercy and elects and chooses I'm speaking to myself now more than to any of you. Remember Romans 8.32 and you're complaining against God. Here it is on the screen. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously, graciously give us all things? I can't answer some of these questions, but I know this, this I will live in the shadow of the cross. I will live in God's goodness to me. I will live in God's mercy. And I will cry a lot for a world that needs his mercy, but willingly shuns it. No one will be able to blame God on that final day for their condemnation. Their condemnation is because they have actively chosen to rebel. And it is hard to to grasp. And I hope it breaks your heart. I hope you don't boast in it. But let it break your heart. Let it lead you to cry in prayer. And to share the gospel. Because God's glory is what is in play here. 
In verses 22 and 23, God does then, he he deigns to to kneel down and speak baby talk to us and say, I'm going to explain it to you. (laughs) Though you really won't understand. You want an explanation. He doesn't wipe us out like we deserve. Condescends to us. Oh, he's so patient and good and kind. Parents, what a model for us to follow with our children. As I hear little ones running through the hallway here. And what does he say? He says, listen, my mercy as well as my justice, both of them are for my glory that my name may be known. Look at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he beforehand prepared beforehand from his glory. See, the glory of God is what's at stake. I believe mercy shines forth the glory of God brightest, but so does justice. So does his wrath. In fact, oftentimes, the glory of God shines brightest. The mercy of God shines brightest, is appreciated the most on the backdrop of God's justice and wrath and judgment. There is no good news without bad news. Jesus saves. From what? We have to understand first, we're in trouble. And rightly so. Before we can hear the mercy, value the mercy, the undeserved mercy of God. Listen, God is faithful to his promises. And the reason is because he guarantees them because he does all the choosing. He does all the giving of mercy. It's going to happen because God's doing it. Now we respond. That's another sermon, but not today's. But that very way in which he fulfills his promises, in which he, he, he keeps his word, has elicited these questions about his justice and his fairness. You know, d- does God keep his word? This one is, does God play fair? And the answer to both is yes. And now, Paul is going to go back to what he began way back in chapter, chapter 9, the early part of chapter 9. He's going to discuss... Those people whom God in his sovereign free way and and freedom to choose whomever he wants to choose to give mercy to. He's going to now discuss who are those to whom he gives mercy. Point two. Those on whom God has chosen to have mercy. And even in this one, there's a surprise. Surprise. Well, God's not doing it the way I thought he would. Because in verse 24, what does it tell us? It tells us that even us... He's pointing back to those vessels of mercy in verse 23. Those vessels of mercy in verse 23 that were prepared beforehand for God's glory by the glory of God. And he's going to tell us who they are in verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What? What? Yes, The calling of Jews and Gentiles maximizes God's glory. And this is about God's glory, not about ethnic Israel. It's about God's glory. It's not about you. (laughs) You see, 
This is an unexpected turn of events. This is a surprising thing he's writing. But remember, he's writing it to a church in Rome that has tension between Jewish and Gentile Christians. And there are not very many Jewish Christians anymore. There's a ton of Gentile Christians, and they're coming in more and more. And the Jews are wondering, what's going on? Has God's word failed because our brothers, the chosen people, aren't being saved? And Paul says, no, the chosen people now are expanded. It's all people from all races, not just ethnic Israel. And God does the choosing. See, the Jews would have thought that the ones who should be streaming into the door of the church, and the church was growing in Rome and people were streaming in, should be primarily Jewish with just a few Gentiles with their head down because, you know, they're, the, they're the, the unclean, the unwashed, they're the sinners. Maybe just kind of a un- couple of Gentiles straggling in. But no, it's just the opposite. Hundreds and hundreds of Gentiles are stre- streaming in, being saved, And the Jews, by and large, are saying, no, thank you. I'm going to stick with my works in the law. I reject Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and all God's promises. And so what Paul does here is he uses the the Jewish prophets to remind the Jews that what they have done is they failed to read their own prophets because they prophesied this. God's word hasn't failed. God's word has been fulfilled. And here it is. First, we read what God said to Hosea in verse 25 and 26. Look at verse 25. As indeed he, God, says to Hosea, so God is telling Hosea what's going to happen thousands of, hundreds of years later. Probably about five or six hundred years later. Hosea was probably written around five, six hundred BC. Look what he says to Hosea. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. It's us. Wow. Wow. Way cool. And what's even better is that in the New Testament, both Paul and Peter confirm this understanding. Look at Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Paul writing, Remember that you, Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the life of Christ. That's right, Jim. By the blood of Christ and only the blood of Christ. Friends, this is what we celebrated this morning in communion. And if you are feeling the sting of being separated from Christ, alienated from God's covenants of promise, oh, repent and believe in Jesus now. And Peter, writing, says a similar thing in 1 Peter 2.10. Once you were not a people, he's quoting here, this Hosea passage, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Come to the Lord, receive mercy in Christ Jesus alone, dear friends. God's word hasn't failed Jewish Christians in Rome. He planned this from the beginning to bring the Gentiles in. And he planned from the beginning that only a remnant of Israel would be saved. Look at the last two verses. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. You missed that, my Jewish brother. It's there. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. How many people were saved out of Sodom and Gomorrah? 
Not even Lot's wife. A remnant. That is God's will. So let us not let unbelief creep in just because a majority of Israel do not believe at present. That's to be continued as we get through the rest of these chapters. Friends, the point is that the church is the new people of God, the Israel of God, the chosen of God. Israel means chosen of God. God's chosen people are chosen in Christ, irregardless of their ethnicity or their socioeconomic level or their language or their customs or their gender. He chooses all people. Praise God. Let us believe this truth that God does not owe anyone mercy but that our just God chooses to have mercy on whomever he wills. Because if we forget that, if we grumble against God because he, he, he's not saving everybody, then what we've done is we believe that somehow mercy is owed us. And the moment we believe that, our praise and worship of God will dry up. Let's pray. Lord, I don't want my praise and worship of you to dry up. It, 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 there are days when it does feel dry. As Jim mentioned, like that dry as a stick. And Lord, on those days, I just must confess to you and thank you that you're gracious. I have thought that you owed me something. Intellectually, I know you don't owe me. But experientially and really functionally, I start living that way. And instead of gratitude oozing out of my pores and out of my mouth, and instead of a a hunger to come to church and worship God or to gather with friends and speak about God and to sing the, the glories of God and to magnify our Savior and to cry out, hallelujah, what a Savior, I stand there untouched, unmoved, with a jaundiced eye, subtly critiquing you and how you're running the universe and particularly my little corner of it. And I ask you to forgive me, Father. And I thank you that you do in Christ. And I pray that you would pour out your spirit on us just in this moment, this, this, this moment you have ordained, this moment of your people gathering now on earth as a picture of that final day when we'll gather around that final table and forever and ever be in your presence faith, face to face, exhilarating, exciting things that we can't even imagine. But right now we get to experience it in this, this moment as we sing to you and as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.